As obstetrics care around the country continues to disappear, with 54% of rural hospitals no longer offering labor and delivery services, providing quality OB care in rural America has never been more important than it is today. So how do rural hospitals build a robust, sustainable obstetrics program that improves and supports the well-being of their community? With a dedicated team, a focus on quality, and passion for rural mothers and their babies. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to another episode of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Rachel, our guest today is someone who is passionate, someone who has dedicated their time to improving the quality of lives for our mothers and babies here in Hillsdale County. That's right. We are talking with someone who, in a way, came back to Hillsdale. We'll talk about To that. be right here <laughs> and serve this community, focusing on ob care and being part of a team that is giving patients incredible Incredible obstetrics care. Absolutely. For anywhere, but especially considering the fact that we're in a rural community. That's right. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Spencer, OBGYN, right here at Hillsdale Hospital. Welcome to Rural Health Rising for your first time. Oh, thank you all for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you. So to start, Dr. Spencer, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work here at Hillsdale Hospital? Great. So I'm a native to Jonesville, so I'm very familiar with the area. Um, I went to undergrad at Albion College, so I didn't leave too far from home. And then um, I trained at um, Michigan State University for medical school and did my training in Sterling Heights. Um, And then shortly after my training, I was in Kalamazoo for a few years. Very good. And then we were very fortunate to have you come here. Well, and... (laughs) She's better known for her grandmother, who yes. uh, who absolutely grabbed me by the ear one day and talked about her granddaughter. And Did she she, really? she was your number one cheerleader. Oh yeah, I uh, bet. here. And when she heard that we were in this agreement for you to come back to Hillsdale, I think I that was the first person I heard from was Grandma. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's been a loyal supporter of our auxiliary program. But yes. uh, I was just in a meeting with her yesterday. Could not ask She's for awesome. a, a better, uh, better grandma. That's for sure. But it is oh, great yeah. to have you here. She sings your praises. All she the time. does all the time, and and we're excited to have you here as well. It's always good to probably come back home, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Mm-hmm. But you know, we want to start. Uh, we we always ask a question at the beginning of each of these podcasts, and it's it's a question about why, and uh, it's a deep question, right? When you think about it, it's for us. It allows us to get to know you a little bit better and our listeners, because we know you somewhat, but someone listening across the country, they have no idea who you are. So what I want you to do is for us today, you know, describe your why, what, what motivates you, what gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the wonderful things that you do. I always loved medicine and science. And so that's why I went into this career. Um, But as I got farther into training, I learned that there is a lot of human connection in medicine, Mm -hmm. um, more so than just treating disease. Right. And so it's been really nice, especially in a rural community where I get to know my patients a lot better, um, really to be more involved in their lives and help to improve quality of life for people. And and Dr. Spencer, you would have to, I mean, arguably, you would would agree with this, I'm assuming, uh, the, the types of things that you're seeing here isn't compared to what you dealt with in your training. <laughs> it's tough. Right. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because I think the misconception is laid back rural life. 
Well, it may be laid back for, you know, the people that live here, but for our providers, you know, these are folks that are working sometimes one call, you know, two in call, maybe one and three call. Uh, and that is very taxing all year round. So we'll dive into a little bit about what makes it so dynamic here in a few minutes. And for our listeners today, you know, maybe you're not familiar with rural health um, in terms of obstetrics. You really need to pay attention because mm -hmm. it's strikingly different than what we experience in urban centers. And a lot of articles, a lot of literature, Rachel, as you know, on delivery care models for rural health mm -hmm. as it relates to obstetrics. Mm -hmm. And it's much different. And, right. and I'm excited to get to talk about that today. Yeah, yeah. So let's start with a kind of a high-level overview of obstetrics care in a rural hospital. What does that look like? And how is it different from your experiences in non-rural settings? So obstetric care in a rural hospital... It's a wild ride yeah. <laughs> most days. Yeah. Um, we see all sorts of medical conditions, mm -hmm. same as what I would see in a big, bigger mm -hmm. city. Um, but we have fewer specialists to help us manage right. those yeah. conditions. Yeah. Um, and so we're, there are surprises around the corner every day. Every day. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, we're on call much more than, mm -hmm. than in urban settings. Mm -hmm. um, and so really this job is, you have to incorporate it into everyday life. Yeah. For yeah. me, I feel like... Even when I'm not on the clock, I'm still on the clock. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that's okay, though. Mm -hmm. um, right. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to support each other as partners. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that right. means that we're just a phone call away pretty much all of the time. And right. a team approach is what you have, right? Right. Maybe talk a little bit about that team approach. Would you mind uh, how that right. works in the clinic? Yeah. So in our clinic, we have three OBGYN providers, um, Dr. Odell, Dr. Sinisco, and myself. Um, we have a midwife who's great, um, Rachel McCormick. Mm -hmm. And then we have a nurse practitioner, Alyssa Hartley. Um, we all work together very well um, mm -hmm. to give our patients the best care that we can. Um, and I think working in a group setting like that, it allows us to bounce ideas off of each other. It allows us to mm -hmm. support each other with difficult cases and with the goal of providing the best care that we can for our patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, we were talking before we started recording, about the, in the birthing center itself, the variety of things <laughs> that all of the nurses are doing and how that experience when you're in the birthing center is different because of who's doing what mm -hmm. and how kind of the the breadth of skill set that has to be present from each individual on the team. Right. Our nurses are so important to the care of our patients, mm -hmm. especially in a rural hospital, um, because there are so few providers and we have to, you know, multitask. Mm -hmm. They are really the glue that keeps mm -hmm. the labor and delivery working. They're yeah. our eyes mm -hmm. and ears most yeah. of the time. And we really depend on them to help manage our patients, yeah. help us to, you know, interview patients and help us to come up with diagnoses even. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're really, it sounds like they do more than maybe in a larger facility because there's not as many different subspecialties or specialized groups of nurses. We have a group of nurses and they're all doing a lot of different things as well as supporting you guys. You even mentioned like, you know, in a bigger hospital where you might have residents, there are certain things that your nurses are doing instead. Right. So our nurses practice the full yeah. breadth of, of what they're capable. So they right. do the tip, do our tip top of their visits. license. Right. They manage yeah. labor. They take care of babies. 
they take care of postpartum, so they mm-hmm. do everything, and they all share those roles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A new dynamic for us, and it's obviously throughout the country, but uh, is incorporating this concept of nurse practitioners or, you know, not so much PAs in the industry, it's more midwives. Right. Um, and, and there was a time in which we had a midwife with a single provider here, but mm-hmm. then, you know, we had some transition uh, periods. But, you know, when you think about the team approach to the care that you give, mm-hmm. what role does the nurse practitioner or the midwife play in both your clinic and in, let's say, OR or in the actual obstetrics area? Um, Our nurse practitioners and midwives are great support people for us. They help us to see our lower risk patients Mm -hmm. um, and they help to support us in the OR, Mm -hmm. giving us an extra hand. Mm -hmm. Um, That's their main role, but I think they're really important to help us do our job Right. Better and more efficiently. Right. Right. I know myself, I was, um, because as our listeners may or may not remember, I am currently myself pregnant and will be giving birth here at Hillsdale Hospital. Um, But there was a day several weeks ago where I had been basically super nauseous for like four or five days, but it never had any morning sickness. So by that, you know, past the midway point in my pregnancy, it was like, um, this could be weird. And that was the first time I actually saw Rachel, who's our nurse midwife Mm -hmm. here at Hillsdale Hospital. Mm -hmm. Because it was like, well, we probably want to see you today just to make sure everything is okay. Mm-hmm. And so she's able to be there as that support of, you know, to make sure we can squeeze patients in for things like that that need to be seen same day and provide that support to you guys. Whereas you might have, you know, a full schedule of your patients that were already scheduled or things that are higher risk or bigger issues that then you have your other people who can help support that and give patients that care. And it was mm-hmm. great for me because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I've never actually gotten to see Rachel before as a patient. Yeah. So this will be great. And, and she's amazing. So it was yeah. a wonderful experience and, and, and all s- that. surgery assist as well, right? You have some that provide that level of support. So Rachel helps with yeah. our C-sections, right. some oh, of wow. them. Yeah. Um, so she's our first assist okay. for so that. first assist for mm-hmm. that. In, in the OR, generally we are helping each other as physicians yeah. Yeah. Um, with our major cases like hysterectomies or more mm-hmm. complicated mm-hmm. cases, um, mm-hmm. we do those surgeries together yeah. because we find that it's safer and it's good to have two brains there and two sets yeah. of capable hands and we have, right. I think we have better outcomes that way. Well, yeah. let me ask you a question then. So in urban areas where you've practiced before, okay, mm-hmm. and, and they're not like metro urban areas, but um, – is that approach utilized by those facilities or is it more you get the first assist and you get the three scrub techs and you get, can you explain the difference right. between the two? A lot of urban hospitals have residents or, mm-hmm. you know, bigger hospitals, That's maybe true. not, not even urban. Yeah. So residents You're right. fill yeah. that role yeah. quite a bit. Okay. Um, but at my last hospital that I was at, we didn't have residents all of the time. And so we did have surgical first assist. That was their job. Okay. That they, they assisted in the OR and they were the extra set of hands. Yeah. And, and let's talk a little bit about your arrival here at Hillsdale Hospital because, you know, I've spent a tremendous amount of my time in physician recruitment and it's hard in rural America. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank God you had a tie here, right? Normally, you right. most likely would not have come back here had you not That's right. gone to college or school right. here and, and family here. But um, can you talk to us about, you know, that, I'm going to call it homecoming, okay? You had your choice. You could, right. you, you could have stayed at those bigger centers where you would have probably a surgical assist dedicated just to you. You probably had your own APP dedicated to you, probably a lot less patient panel that would be dedicated to you because typically what we find here is you you are going to get it all 
right? Right. And so why'd you do it? Why'd you come here? I was in a point in my life where I was looking at switching jobs. Um, Mm. I felt that I was doing okay in my current role, but Mm -hmm. there were some changes within the hospital that I didn't feel were right for me. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking for a change. And honestly, the main reason I ended up here was because of Dr. Odell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She recruited me. I think um, you were, were you high school friends or are you? We did were, you guys graduate together? She was a year behind me in okay. high school. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we right. were, so were the band cool together. You were the cool kids. That's right. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. But <laughs> <laughs> she would. Look, she would. She would. So honestly, I always said I would never come to Hillsdale Hospital. Yeah. And not because it's Hillsdale Hospital, right. but because it's Small. rural. Yeah. Right. And you're on call all the time. Yeah. And it's I not thought I didn't want that for myself. Exactly. But... After talking with her, um, I thought it would be a good good change to come back yeah. home, be closer to family, yeah. and mm-hmm. and so far I've really loved it. Actually, so let's talk a little bit about that experience because mm-hmm. you you arrived on scene. Obviously, um, hopefully you you what we promised you was actually what we lived up to. Uh, you know the coverage model is always the toughest because mm-hmm. with one of you gone sick. Right. FMLA, pregnancy, whatever it is, uh, typically your the other two are going to be picking up some of the slack. You've done mm-hmm. that recently for us, and that can be very taxing. Um, so, you know, in that in that sense, um, give us an idea about you. You have patients arriving who are addicted to meth. You have patients. You know, Dr. Odell was with us on a Facebook Live once and and shared she delivered in the car. Out in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Have you had that experience yet? I have not personally had that <laughs> okay. experience. All right. No. But it's coming. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I wouldn't assured. be surprised. Yeah. But deliver- and well, and patients who come in that have had no prenatal care, yeah. they yes. show up to deliver. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and I want to dig a little deeper into that social economic, you know, when you think mm-hmm. of those things. And then you think about access to care, right? Mm-hmm. Transportation being our largest barrier in our community. It's hard for some moms to get to see their OBGYN. Right. And, um, you know, Dr. Snisco, the the chief of, of our program, shared with me that uh, I I was alarmed. The number of individuals that just show up ready to deliver. That we've never seen before. That we've never, ever, Rachel. And by we, I mean y'all have never right. seen before. You've never laid your the eyes on we, them. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then they're telling you, yeah, I got high blood pressure. Yeah, I just did this. I just did that. What is that like um, as a physician when yeah. someone walks in like that? It's challenging for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's frustrating yeah. at times and it's sad at times because yeah. those patients that come to us with no care are the people that need the most support. They have complications going on in their pregnancy mm-hmm. that are not appropriately managed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so those patients sometimes don't have the best outcomes. Yeah, And unfortunately, yeah. they come to us when it's too late for oh, us to really help. Yeah change right. the outcome. Right. They're there when they're ready to deliver or have to be delivered yeah. because of right. medical yeah. complications. I just had one, a patient uh, end of last week mm-hmm. who came to me, had very little care and found that her baby wasn't doing well. And so we delivered her the next day. Mm-hmm. And it's just a real shock to patients. And it's, yeah, it's challenging. Were to you shocked us. when that first patient came in? That you actually had, had. you ever experienced, experienced that, that okay. before? So it wasn't totally so new. So it's not right. a total shock, um, but it is just challenging yeah. because you want to try to help 
these patients as much as you can, but you know that because of their social situations, that they just can't always follow the recommendations that you give them. Right. You know, so then um, my understanding is the minute the baby comes, you're done. That's right. right. So the baby gets handed off to the peds and and if they're sick babies, they are transferred, you know, obviously to a higher acuity facility. But, you know, the let's talk a little bit about the aftercare, though, of a mother. Can we do that? Sure. Because I think in rural health and in rural communities, you know, the absence of pelvic floor, the absence of PT services, you know, and therapies Mm -hmm. can make it very difficult and Mm -hmm. can impact the quality of life for a mother. Right. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, that challenge and rule. Um, now, the good news is for us, we're we're kind of champion that, right? You know, right. we're starting the Women's Pelvic Center. You're hopefully going to be involved in that, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Odell and others, because at some level you're at least referring right. to mm-hmm. to these types of things. So, talk to us about. All right, we've had the we've had the baby. Um, you're not done with the mom yet. You know, you're still seeing that mom as right. as their primary care GYN, right? And you're you're following them on that journey. And talk to us about what the challenges are in rural for following the mom. Right. I would say, in my experience overall, I would say things like pelvic floor therapy are in general are under underutilized. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I've actually experienced here. Um, that I tend to try to recommend that for patients more than right. even I did before. Right. Mm-hmm. The challenge lies in insurance coverage it is. and oh, patient yeah. transpor- transportation oh, to get to those huge, appointments. Huge. Those are the mm-hmm. biggest limiting factors. Yeah. yeah. So that can get a little bit frustrating and maybe there's a way that we can come up with something yeah. in the office, like a little, a sheet with some exercises that we to can at least give people or, to do yeah. at home yeah. or something. Yeah. But yeah, I would say it's still very challenging, even though we do have someone who provides yeah. those services yeah. around here, which is great. Right. There are still financial, yeah. you know, restrictions yeah. that people have right. that they just can't yeah. afford it. Right. You and must. is that primarily postpartum or is there... Do you have patients where they have some something going on or some sort of condition where they need that kind of care before delivery? Right. Um, I would say generally we don't do a lot of pelvic floor during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of an after pregnancy right. thing. That's right. not to say that it wouldn't be beneficial, but right, generally right. we do it postpartum. Because that's but, where the biggest need is. Right. Pelvic floor, though, is very useful in lots it of different is. conditions, prolapse, mm-hmm. urinary incontinence, mm-hmm. chronic pelvic pain. Mm-hmm. And right. a lot of patients find that to be really helpful. And yeah. so it's uh, very minimally invasive. Mm-hmm. Well, generally speaking, right. not medical yeah. You know, medicine or surgery, it's more of a physical therapy approach to treating conditions. Right. And experiencing, um, you know, the population that, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, poverty in our mm-hmm. in our community and it's we're no different than a lot of rural communities you know we talked about transportation then we talk about your heart must just break at times i'm sure you hear all kinds of stories about access to care but i want to ask you another question um you know right now there's a huge debate going on across this country about the sustainability of rural health and how we should either support them or you have to let them die. And our communities are really suffering. You know, there's been over 140 hospitals in America, rural, that have closed since 2010. And that number is only going to increase. We we have had mm-hmm. presentations from experts across the industry who have shared with us that that number is going to probably quadruple 
uh, in the next year. And we believe it with some of the the forecasting and some of the reality of what we're experiencing, mm-hmm. even ourselves, of some of those losses. But um, I, I have a philosophy, and my philosophy is so goes your OB, so goes your community. I really firmly believe, and this is why I've invested in our obstetrics program. You know, we were always told that we're no more than a two FTE OBGYN town. That's all you can afford, especially the payer mixes. I committed to three, and I did that not just because it's quality of life for the physician, but because I know that there's a need in our mm-hmm. communities. But a lot of communities, the first thing that they're giving up, do you know, is obstetrics. It's obstetrics, yeah. And and I don't know if they're teaching you that in school that this is happening, or if if you've done any research. Could you weigh in on this particular issue and what you think the economic? Take that aside. What do you think the the impact is going to be for the care that our community receives? Uh, I think loss of obstetrics in rural communities is going to be a huge loss to much of the United States. Um, yeah, right. You know, um, about 22% of women re- of reproductive age are in rural communities. Yeah. So that's a significant mm-hmm. huge portion number. of our population. And a lot of rural communities are what keep our country right. running. Right. Yeah. Factories. Putting food and on the table. Farming. Putting and, products on the shelf. Right. Yeah. And so it really would be a loss to the whole effect the whole country, not mm-hmm. just people mm-hmm. locally. That's right. You know, and uh, the the impact to the community for the wellness of the mother, and then you have the wellness of the baby, because a lot of the things that we do um, as a community hospital is we support, you know, food banks. Mm-hmm. We support, you know, services that help a mom. And when you lose your community hospital, all those resources are gone. And think about, you know, abruptions or things that you need to get to the hospital rather quickly. Right. Uh, now you're 45 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So when I hear my colleagues who have said it to me before, yeah, we have to close our OB program. I would say to them, you need to cherish that, make it a community benefit. You have to save it because I firmly believe mm-hmm. that that is the strength of your hospital as a community. Now, we almost lost ours. Um, we actually, Dr. Alfred Bediaco, who we've talked with before. Mm-hmm. He's been uh, on the podcast. Dr. Bediaco is a, is a legend in our community. The namesake of the Bediaco Birthing, Birthing Center, Center here at Hillsdale Hospital. And primarily because he was the only guy yeah. that was here. He was the, the one he for was the a long one. time. The only one that was willing to take, you know, and, and his philosophy, you know, has always been that if you don't support your rule obstetrics, your entire community will suffer. And we've witnessed that. So I think if there's any opportunity for the legislature to listen to us, it's mm-hmm. in that we have to have uplifts for programs like obstetrics. Right. Mental health is another big one. That's huge. You know, those two. And sometimes. And they go would you together. Submit? Yeah. They that's what I was going to ask her. Talk to us a little bit about heavily. some of that. Right. Do you see patients who you're like, whoa, we, we got to get them on some meds? We see lots of moms that have mental health um, yeah. problems. And yeah. mm-hmm. a lot of it is because they are, you know, economically challenged and they just have really tough lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you add pregnancy on it, which is a stressful situation yeah. and hard for people to keep their jobs mm-hmm. yeah. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, both of those things just kind of yeah. combined are, are tough on, on patients. Right. Right. So the community supporting, you know, mental health services and psychiatry is so important. There mm-hmm. are many pregnant women who, because of their pregnancy, have to go off certain of their meds that they're using for control. Right. And, and as long as it's monitored, you can get through it. But in communities where you're not seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist, right. you aren't 
going to get through it because right. they're going to take you off of that and you're not going to adjust or, or adapt or, or cope. Right. And that can be very detrimental for both the mom and the baby. I think we have to heighten the awareness of, of rule, not only obstetrics, but also of mental health and, mm-hmm. and wellness in our communities. I think that's an important piece. Oh, absolutely. And I myself am very open about the fact that I yeah. have ADHD, yeah. so a superpower and also yes. a curse sometimes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so my medication for that, I don't take while I'm pregnant and it's I mean, it's hard. It's it tough. Hard. Um, and I also take medication for depression that fortunately can be taken through pregnancy. Yeah. But what I really appreciate is that you guys have a very good system and really follow best practices for postpartum depression or postpartum mm-hmm. anxiety screening. And you're asking the questions at every single visit. I get the questions on my MyChart app before I mm. you know, check in before my appointments. And then the questions are asked when I'm in the office. And it's very comforting to me as someone who knows that I could be more likely to experience PPD just because I have a history of depression that you guys are looking out for me. But I know that's not just me. I know that you do that with everybody. Right. You know, and it seems like there's so much of a better understanding now, even though there's still a big stigma. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are still a lot of women who especially I think there's a, a struggle. And tell me about your experience with this with patients that patients trying to determine, do I have the baby blues or is this postpartum depression? Right. I think patients in recent years have been a lot more open Mm -hmm. about talking about their Mm -hmm. mental health as well because we do expose our patients to the topic more. We're asking more. And sometimes I feel like it's a little bit too much. It feels like, oh my gosh, are we, you know, pushing pushing someone to think about it too much? Are we, you know, annoying them with with all of these, yeah. you know, basically. surveys, yeah. basically. Yeah. So, um, but ultimately, mental health is a huge, can be hugely affected by pregnancy. And so right. that's why we ask so often. Um, and and again, I think patients are really open to the conversation now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. more so than ever before. Yeah. What would that look like in your practice if if the mother said to you, yeah, I'm I'm suffering from these. What is a segue then for you as a provider? What do you do next? Right. So we usually have them fill out an Edinburgh depression screening score that helps us to kind of know, is this just the baby blues potentially, Mm -hmm. or is this more serious depression? Mm -hmm. Um, We'll kind of go into asking them about how is this affecting your quality of life? Are you able to go through your day-to-day activities, or is this really limiting your ability to to mm-hmm. get through each day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then generally, you know, we like to offer therapy or counseling as a first option, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a great option. Yeah. I do run into trouble, especially in this community, with resources for right. that and trying to get people to and a insurance therapist. Co- I mean, just to find the provider and then you have insurance coverage, which is tough because it's not that broad, really, for counseling and therapy. That's, right. That can be hard, too. So that's just another reason that we need more support for right. mental health services. Um, I find also that mental health providers tend to be afraid of pregnant patients. Oh. They get nervous about prescribing medications. And so a lot of times as OBs, we end up taking over those prescriptions, which we are totally fine with it because somebody has to prescribe it. And, you know, we probably have more experience in pregnancy with those things. Of like, because you have to weigh the risk between the risk of the mom taking the medication to the risk of the mom not taking mm-hmm. it, right? Exactly. Like, how do you how do you balance that? I imagine that's probably where a mental health provider that doesn't specialize in pregnancy 
gets uncomfortable is having to make that decision and weigh right. those two things. Right. Ultimately, we feel that mental health is very, very important. And so we put a lot of weight on, on treating mm-hmm. that if mm-hmm. it needs to be. Yeah. Majority of our medications that we prescribe in pregnancy are safe. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, every once in a while you run into somebody who's on a medication that you're not as familiar with. And so then we will reach out to, you know, psychiatry or other resources Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. kind of talk it over and see if that's acceptable to continue. Well, and the other thing I think that makes it hard is that it's not ethical to study pregnant women by giving them medications and seeing if it hurts the baby or not. Right. So there are a lot of things it seems like in OB in general that because they can't really be studied, there are things that like, we don't know for sure, and there's a potential mechanism that this could be harmful. Right. Therefore, let's, you know, not do that. Yeah. And really the only way to, to research that, I guess, would be after the fact, right? If That's, someone was on a medication mm-hmm. for whatever reason, but then it's like getting that person into a study and like tracking right. all of that That's is exactly right. very complicated, just like mm-hmm. with the COVID vaccine, mm-hmm. right, for pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Right. That's most medications in yeah. pregnancy and especially... You know, we we categorize medications A, B, C, D, and right. X, right? So yeah. majority are C, you mm-hmm. know, meaning probably they're safe, but but we have to say, well, we know it's going to be beneficial yeah. for mm-hmm. you. We don't have any studies saying that, yes, this is going to be harmful mm-hmm. for sure. And so, okay, it's probably beneficial yeah. to go ahead right. and so, so you have mental health and wellness. I want right. to transition real quick. So believe it or not, our time's almost uh, done. <laughs> but I want to talk a little bit about substance abuse. And I know we hit on it just a minute ago, but, you know, both the Rural Health Information Hub and AddictionCenter.org talk about, you know, the comparison between rural health and urban health uh, as it relates to the drug issues that each mm-hmm. of those communities are facing. And I'm going to give a quote from Rural Health uh, Information. It says, though often perceived to be a problem for the inner city, substance use and misuse have long been prevalent in rural areas. Rural adults have higher rates of use for tobacco and methamphetamines, while opioids has grown in towns of every size, they're more centralized to urban uh, or to rural areas. So when when you look at something like this, and we talk about urban versus rural areas, when it says it's more prevalent in rural areas for tobacco and meth, which is truly what we do find. Right. Yes. um, Let's talk about that. How hard is that to educate a family whose dad and mom and sisters and brothers have all smoked? And how do you handle that? I mean, those types of substances are just so addictive. And so unless somebody is really motivated to make change, it feels almost impossible to have people make the change, especially when it's normal. In quotes. In their environment. In their environment. How they grew up. Right. yeah. It's very difficult. So they're exposed Socially to it accepted. constantly. Yeah. Right. It's a physical addiction to the substance. And then it's like, okay, I have to figure out how to make this work if you're the patient. I mean, I can't imagine and you trying to do trying to, to manage that, especially with as hard as it is for people who yeah. are not pregnant to get treatment for substance yeah. use disorder. Right. It's well, there's so few beds. The coverage well, isn't unreal. great. You only get so much support. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I mean, I just, I can't imagine how difficult that is for patients. And as a physician, how hard it is to manage their care in the best way you can, knowing that you can't fix all of it. Yeah. Right. You know, and you've, so you've got tobacco as, as one of the leading for, for rule, right? Mm -hmm. Substance abuses. And so um, do you screen 
do you, is that a question like, do you use tobacco? Yes. All right. Our, our when they tell you yes, medical assistance. What do you do? Screen. Well, we try to counsel them on yeah. on risks of use in pregnancy, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and advise them to quit. Try yeah. to give them, you know, some suggestions on resources of how to quit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wouldn't say there's a specific place that we're able yeah. to send mm-hmm. patients for, you know, yeah. substance is it, or tobacco. Is it use or cigarettes or is it nicotine or both? That's both. the problem. Okay, both. so it's not like. Some of the alternatives they could use temporarily go to nicotine gum or something. It's not really going to do what needs to be done to fix the well, issue. It, it can, but patients oh, have stuff, to be yeah. motivated and they have to yeah. be able right. to afford those. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's cigarettes right. are expensive anyway, but, but, still, but they still. have to weigh. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so a lot of it is being able to afford. Um, but we have a lot of people who vape still to yeah. nicotine. Yeah. So when you see the... We get a whole podcast episode on vaping. Oh, I could get on my soapbox about yeah, vaping. We'll, we'll bring in someone from uh, cardiopulmonary to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, but, let's just get a whole nother... After after we've had a generation of people who know smoking kills, now we have another yeah. generation coming in vaping as if it's yeah. somehow safe. It's like terrible. But that's a hard educational uh, you know, process when it's been generational. Right. And right. when my grandfather and father and brothers all do it, it's just it's it's social. Right. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so so some um, OBGYN offices, do you know that some are so selective they don't take patients who smoke? Right. We well, could never do we that. We don't have the option. For we don't that have the here. option. We have to serve them. Right. Well, but also, like, I'm sorry, that to me is so I don't care where you are. Yeah. Why would you do that to a patient? Yeah. Well, some do. They some don't want to you. take the risk of of that. I know, and but there's it some just bachelor surgeons. Same same with that. Uh, they, you know, just simply do not want to see that patient because they know what the outcome is. And but here in rural health, we have to do it whether we counsel them and they take our advice or not. Because right. we're serving, you know, a high population of folks who are obviously fitting that criteria that's been mm-hmm. just described to us. Well, and I guess that's a conversation that Seems to be happening more in medicine, and you'll have a better perspective on this than I do, Dr. Spencer, but of things like the word noncompliance, like this patient is not compliant. What does that mean, right? Because it Mm -hmm. implies intent and doesn't take into account, well, this patient is noncompliant because they didn't have a ride to the pharmacy. That's why they're not taking their medicine. Not The patient doesn't care. Mm -hmm. They're not listening. They don't want to, blah, 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 right? Like, how is that being, especially in school now? How's that being talked about and addressed of like the perspective and and even the words that are used to describe how patients are engaging in their own health? Personally, I try not to use that word much anymore, Mm -hmm. particularly since I've moved to a rural setting. I'm able to be more firsthand and really understand why Mm -hmm. patients are not following the recommendations that we're giving. Mm -hmm. And it's because they can't physically do it or can't financially do it. And so to label them with something as non-compliant seems a little bit unfair to the patient. Gives them kind of a, you know, a bad rap when maybe, you know, they're not really trying to be that way. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. It kind of can create a negative stereotype or perspective toward the patient that I would imagine over time can kind of sink into your mind as a provider. And then the way you think about this patient Mm -hmm. can change because you've been telling yourself they're noncompliant as opposed to telling yourself they need transportation or we need to see if their prescriptions can get delivered or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it may be. Right. puts kind of a dark cloud over the patient, essentially. And so I try to approach it as if the patient isn't following recommendations that I'm giving them, I try to ask questions. Okay, why weren't you able to do this? Is there something, are Mm -hmm. you having trouble with transportation? Is there something else 
that we can figure out as as to reason yeah. why you're not able to yeah. mm-hmm. follow through yeah. and try to work with them that way. It's still right. challenging. And um, I imagine I I would just imagine that that to a patient is very refreshing and makes them feel very seen because there are probably circumstances in their life in healthcare where they have not been treated that way. Mm-hmm. Right. When they're not able to do to to follow whatever recommendations mm-hmm. are given. So I appreciate that you do that. And I think it probably helps you build stronger relationships with patients who have not had that experience before with their healthcare providers. Right. I hope so. Um, You know, we take the group approach. And so there's not always follow up on it, but I I do try to do my best to support patients in that way. Is that being talked about in medical school and residency and things like that these days or not really? Is that more of like a physicians on social media have those kinds of discussions? You know, I'm not really involved in the social media part of things. I try to to stay out of it. Um, And, you know, I, I went through residency a while ago now. Right. Um, And so, but no, it wasn't a big focus. Mm -hmm. I had some attendings who did take more of a social approach Mm -hmm. and I Mm -hmm. didn't really understand it. Oh, at first. Yeah. And yeah. I started to see more and more as I got through my training, oh, this is why they're asking. It's because this doctor knows his patient and he knows that they don't have transportation or he yeah. knows, yeah. you know, that right. that they're not going to be doing able to follow yeah. through with the follow-up that I've suggested. Yeah. And so he would have some different management opinions and it finally yeah. started to make sense. Oh, yeah. this is why. It's because he knows his patients. He knows they can't yeah. always complete. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, in rural healthcare, you're a counselor, you're a physician, uh, you're a mentor. Um, and, you know, I often say we're doing God's work here. It's almost like missionary work. And to be in rural health, you've demonstrated, um, you know, obviously very, very clearly here, uh, it's not ordinary work. It's it's challenging, but it's rewarding. Uh, you get to see, you know, the little faces of those children that you helped the mother, you know, nurture through her pregnancy and and really had a substantial impact on their life. And um, oftentimes I hear as I'm in the community, Dr. Spencer, Dr. Snisco, Dr. O'Dell, it's your, your legends and that's a good thing mm-hmm. uh, because of the great things that you've done to follow this family for nine months uh, and then giving them care afterwards. So I want to thank you on behalf of Rural Health Across Michigan uh, as a member of the MHA board. You know, our focus is on uh, mental health services and obstetric services. I want to thank you for the delivery of those. For, you know, Hillsdale Hospital as a president of this hospital, I want to thank you Mm -hmm. for the contributions you make individually to uh, this organization and to our community, for the wellness of our community. You had choices. You could have went, you know, obviously anywhere. Uh, with your background, and um, I am so appreciative that you chose Hillsdale Hospital as your home. So I want to thank you for your contributions here individually, and then as a group, uh, the work that you do at our office mm-hmm. I think is so important. Uh, and then for your passion, it's second to none. Uh, you know, your care that you give to our families uh, is so important to me and to our community. So on behalf of Hillsdale Hospital, on behalf of the larger community of healthcare across the state of Michigan, I want to say thank you not only for that contribution, but also for joining us today on a very exciting podcast as we talk about rural health and obstetrics. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been really great being a part of a you know small community and really feeling mm-hmm. like I can contribute yeah. and make some difference. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I also will just thank you as a patient (laughs) because you guys are all awesome. They are awesome.
Before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. And you're from rural. Oh, boy. So you come from <laughs> rural Hillsdale County uh, and Jonesville, I believe, in the metropolis yes, of Jonesville, which yes. I believe they have two stoplights now. I think so. Two. Yeah, they yep. do. Uh, oh, three. I think oh, we have three. There is three now yep. that I counted. Moving on up. There is. Yeah, moving on up. Maybe there'll be four by this Maybe. time next year. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so you grew up rural. Uh, you know what that's about. How many did you graduate with at Jonesville? Do you remember? I think there were 89 people 89 in my people, class. Right? Wow. Rachel, how many did you graduate with? Um, 412. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was bigger than yeah. my college yeah. graduating class. I had 50. Yeah. All right. Camden. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Camden Frontier. Redskins. So, um, you know... I want to ask you, what is, it could be related to the care that you've given to our patients, or it could just be experiences that, you know, when you think about rural, uh, what, what comes to mind? What, what is your most memorable experience that you can associate with rural living for those who may not live in a rural area? Right. I don't know if I have a specific, uh, memory or, you know, but there's just a real sense of community. Yeah. Here. Mm-hmm. I agree. And you know, everybody knows everybody, and sometimes that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> <But> most, <laughs> I'd say most of the time yeah. that's a positive thing. Yeah. I really feel like I've been incorporated into the community, and it yeah. really feels like people are appreciative, yeah. which helps me to be able to do my job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It helps me to be able to keep going every day yeah. when mm-hmm. things get tough and you're it tired. Does. And, it does. Right. So that spirit of community means mm-hmm. so much. And mm-hmm. um, we're so excited that you're part of ours. So once again, thanks for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. Great. Thank you for having me. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com. 